tech IPOs are back. Google is in court with the DOJ. Flexport continues to, well, float around amid a new leadership change and plenty more is going on. We'll talk about all that as we come back after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast Friday edition, where we break down the news in our traditional cool-headed, nuanced format. Ranjan Roy is here with us. Welcome back, Ranjan. Summer's over and tech IPOs are back. I'm excited. That's right. So we had uh, not only a huge tech IPO this week, where Arm is up 25% after it has IPO'd, um, but another one just filed. Instacart has filed and it's ready to go. It seems like after a two-year hiatus, tech companies are finally returning to the public markets. What do you make of this? Yeah, I think, so first of all, Arm, the uh, AI chip design company um, that is controlled by SoftBank from my favorite Masayoshi son, their IPO jumped 25% on the first day of trading. And this is incredible. The IPO market has been in a drought essentially since early 2022 i think it was actually around the time ukraine uh, the russia conflict started that was really when the market closed and it has not been open since so it's been a year and a half that markets essentially been shut off and if you think about every late stage startup that has been itching to get out arm is the best sign ever <laughs> the idea that a company can actually ipo see its valuation jump to 60 billion dollars I think is a hugely positive sign. And also it's a win for Masayoshi's son. It's a win for the overall vision. We haven't really heard about SoftBank in a long time. This is exciting for him. Okay, so let me put the counter argument here, which is that, you know, there's been this long standing belief that if your stock pipe pops on IPO day, then you're doing great. But it's all isn't it all in how the banks price it like you can kind of price it in a way that's going to make it pop. You're going to price it in a way you kind of want to be even, right? Because if it pops too much, you've left money on the table for the IPO, right? This year, you get paid, you and the insiders get paid the share price. And then once it turns to the market, that, that 25% gain doesn't even go to the company. So, okay, maybe it looks, seems like, oh, it's so hot. Everybody wants it. But this is all in the pricing mechanism, right? So why do we care about the fact that it priced? In fact, isn't that a bad sign? Like, doesn't it show that the people who are taking this company public have actually done a bad job? All right. So if we are to get into IPO pricing, I think this is something there's been plenty of debate. Bill Gurley was probably the most vocal around when your IPO pops, you're essentially leaving money on the table, that that's money that you and your private, the the long-term shareholders who took your company from start to going public, that it could have been given to them versus the retail investors or institutional money that actually bought on that first day. To me, I've always had a little bit of problem with that because it's still showing that there's excitement around the stock. It's still showing that people want to get interested and it kind of sets the tone because obviously if something drops on the first day, that's a very bad sign. If something is flat on the first day, that also seems to show that there's not a ton of excitement around this. With with, with Arm though, again, I probably the most praise I will give Masayoshi-san, you already heard it at the beginning of this episode. One thing that was a little interesting here is 
it, it was still around $500 million worth of shares were actually available in the float for a $60 billion company. So it was still a very small percentage of the company was floated, which is, it's in a bit of financial engineering in the sense that, you know, rather than the whole company goes out and now everyone realizes money, it's let's take a small slice. And then obviously the lower the supply, the easier it is for that to actually cause a large shift in the, you know, top line price. And then suddenly the company's worth $60 billion, at least notionally. But SoftBank still does own 90% of the company. I'm sticking to my guns here. I think this is all uh, financial engineering, not even financial engineering, but just sort of engineering a, a, a bump and actually doesn't really bode so well for for the company but it might actually okay the psychological um ramifications here maybe that we end up seeing far more tech ipos happen yep, uh, than we've seen in the IP- past and that people need ipos people exactly. need so they're IPOs. gonna look for any the sign ha- no, real or not yeah. real or not exactly so maybe that and now we're gonna have instacart go out i mean what do you make of the fact so instacart is fascinating it's like we're gonna have this spate of ipos start up but the the actual um valuations that you're going to see i mean obviously softbank did well with arm in fact it's probably its marquee success and it, it needed one right um but now we're going to see some of these companies that have been waiting to go public forever actually go out to the market and we're going to see what they're actually valued compared to these insane private market valuations that vcs had been putting them on so instacart is one that that we're about to see um, it was valued at $39 billion in the private markets, and now it's going to price at a range of 26 to 28 per share, and that's going to value it at $8.9 billion at the midpoint, right? So you're going to go from, this is according to the New York Times, right? You're going from $39 billion to $8.9 billion. Um, even if these startups do go out and do go public and have their IPOs, you know, are we even in a moment to celebrate or is this more of a desperation needed an exit somehow? And this is just the only way left. Well, yeah, I I do think that Instacart, Instacart was interesting for me because having uh, written and had uh, some level of notoriety around DoorDash and food delivery as a topic uh, for our margins newsletter, I was very, very keen in looking at the numbers here. The most amazing part to me about Instacart is they are profitable. They had almost $428 million in profit last year. And their revenue, it's around $2.9 billion, I believe it was. It's, it's in the, you know, the billions, low billions of dollars. They're profitable, though. What was more interesting was 30% of their revenue came from advertising. And advertising, again, everyone has been trying to switch to this. In fact, like DoorDash and their S1, the story was always, we'll start selling, delivering groceries, which will always be potentially low margin, potentially unprofitable. But then within our app, once you're there, then the every vendor, every food creator, everyone will start to pay for advertising to move up in your recommendation feed. And essentially it becomes, you know, like an advertising driven product and advertising is the highest margin business imaginable. So they kind of are showing that it's possible. And I, I, I was pretty surprised. Again, it never was a $39 billion company. Now it's, you know, being valued at four or five X revenue, which is fine, which always could have been the right valuation. So to me, the where it's going out actually, and the fact that it's profitable might be the most perfect sign of just a normal, healthy market. 
Uber does advertising, Lyft does advertising, Instacart does advertising, Amazon does advertising, everybody does advertising in the end. Life is just a long journey toward an advertising (laughs) business. Big technology started as an advertising business. If anybody at the above companies needs some counsel about how to run an advertising business, hit me up. It's a great business. And we will never get into the food delivery business. We started in, in the high margin area. We're sticking with it. Advertising. I, know, I might I might have to go do some DoorDash deliveries right after this. But Exactly. Now, um, let me ask you this, though. You said Instacart's profitable. I thought that profitability was the only thing the market cared about right now. And if you're able to turn a profit, you should be doing well. And yet, even still, the valuation that Instacart is going to go at in, uh, is $30 billion less than one of its more recent private market valuations. So what does that tell you? Does it just tell you that the private market valuation was just completely illogical? I mean, what does it tell you? And and even and, and what does it tell you about the broader market that even if you're meeting what the market wants, your valuation is still going to be as low as Instacart says. But it's not it's not low. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's reasonable. It's 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 cor- longitudinally correct. It's the idea that like I just wanted to say longitudinally. It's uh, it's 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 like twenty to twenty two times earnings. It's four to five times revenue. This is where a even a like a pure technology company should trade a little bit more richly. But like a company that is claims to be pure technology, but obviously has plenty of workers and real world presence, but still is kind of a technology platform. Yeah, it's a hashtag high margin area. One of a someone commented on our live LinkedIn live. It's uh, it it's it's actually to me, it's almost the perfect end to zerp and to show that we're no longer in a manic era when you see these numbers and valuations being ascribed to a business like Instacart, which appears to be healthy, growing. The growth is slowing a little bit, but everything, so is the economy. Like, like overall, if you show me any of these numbers, it would just be like, okay, this is a normal business. Everything, everything looks okay versus uh, where we were a couple of years ago. And again, that $39 billion was height of COVID, height of pandemic. Instacart is the extrapolated pandemic future and and it was just wrong it was it was wrong it's interesting because um it just goes to show you like thinking about how all these companies have gone to advertising right the ubers the lifts the instacarts um this whole generation of startups that were sort of built on share economy convenience economy the businesses have not been strong enough they have to go to an ancillary business like ads what do you think about that I mean, when is Airbnb going to get into the advertising business and you walk into your Airbnb, actually product placements in your Airbnb? Guys, if you're out there listening, just go with it. Just take the idea. They are. And this is a great moment. Yes, they are. Great moment to plug. Brian Chesky sitting down with me on Tuesday. Podcast is going live on Wednesday here on the feed. Yes, it's happening. Just confirmed. I'm sitting down with him in New York. We are running it on Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time, and I will ask him about advertising. I, it, listeners cannot see that I am that shocked that I did. <laughs> I had not on. heard about we this get, from Alex. That's awesome. Here on the show. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm no, no. I'm saying, I'm saying the timing of that. Yeah. Um, but exactly, product placements in Airbnbs because advertising. That what I remember 
Uber was always an interesting one for me because especially anyone in New York who's ever taken an Uber to JFK in traffic knows you essentially have call it 70 to 80 minutes of captive time where you are sitting there, you have the Uber app open periodically anyways because you're checking your time to distance and you're like, uh, sorry, your you know, time to arrival. And so what better place to actually just stick some ads in and they're, they're doing it. So, so yeah, Airbnb, you walk in, this, this brought to you, Kiehl's lotion everywhere, like in Equinox, you I think, I think it would a good be a idea. smart business for them to get into. And it, by the way, it brings it full circle talking about when you're in the, your ride hail app, looking at it, because what, why I always asked, why is a company like Google, for instance, getting into the self-driving business? And it's not, it, it actually is a strategic compliment to what they're doing, because if you're a search business and you're focused on bringing ads to people based off of the intent of what they want to do, there's no more high intent action than getting in a car and going somewhere, traveling somewhere. And if you control transportation, then for instance, your advertising business. Now, of course, that could be a good business on its own, but it's the advertising business that would always, you know, uh, be the interesting part. And I and I do think that that's sort of what Google is, you know, long term going to get into. You're there. You're sitting in the back. There, there's a screen. You're looking at the screen. You're communicating with the Waymo that way. That's going to have ads on it. And there's another place where the ad business starts to triumph as well. Wait, so you're so I get in my Waymo, it knows I'm going to a restaurant, serves me ads for some like discounts potentially, or competitors can uh, start feeding me ads in my Waymo. So on the screen, I don't know. The, I don't know Even if I better. like this future. I don't you're know going in like a Waymo. It's take you to Burger King. The Waymo says after your dinner. We can be here waiting for you, bring you to Carvel. You'll get some ice cream at 10% <laughs> off. That's right, going to happen. All right. That, actually, that is going to happen. I agree with you on that. You uh, uh, pointed out this interesting story that in the information by friend of the program, Corey Weinberg, about how there is a clash between uh, Sequoia Capital and the former co-founder and former CEO of Instacart, Apoorva Meta. Do you want to take us a little bit into that story and why you found it interesting? Yeah, I think so. Apoorva Meta had been pushed out, and actually, um, I believe it's Fiji Simo from Facebook. Yes. By the way, they, they, by the way, just to I'm just pausing quickly because talk about the future of ads. Like it's no, it's no wonder that a Facebook CEO, which is a company that builds itself off of advertising, is coming in and running Instacart. You know, it sort of shows you exactly where things are going. Sorry, I digress. No, no, but 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 that actually was the essentially the kind of signal to the market and the stated move that, you know, like we built this as a pure logistics business, and Apoorva Meta I think was from Amazon, um, and but we're going to move into advertising, so we're bringing in a Facebook executive to take over, and it worked. But but to me, the most interesting part is you had the it's this like incredible play-by-play and i strongly recommend if you're an information subscriber to read it or to subscribe to the information um from the pieces from corey weinberg it's 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 this way of uh, under behind the scenes lead investors and founders where do you value a company you know like how do you keep these inflated valuations do you cut it 
and in order to attract more talent, in order to actually get it to the public markets versus trying to raise more money at that inflated valuation. And it played out perfectly in this uh, saga between Sequoia and Aporva. And I think it's, it's again, and we'll probably talk, touch on Flexport later in the episode. Flexport's another company where, you know, had an inflated pandemic valuation. Every single one of these companies that had an inflated uh, pandemic valuation, this drama is definitely playing out behind the scenes. Advertising is a great business. We're going to take a break, play an ad, and come back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast, talking about the news of the week. Ranjan Roy of Margins is here with us. Thanks for sticking through the ad. Google, all right, they are in the midst of a very interesting antitrust case that really looks at the deals that they've made to put Google in the search bar as the default search, and in some some places icing out uh, other competitors. You can go to um, some phones and, you know, you type a a search query in the search bar and automatically turns to Google. That's not an accident. Google pays billions of dollars for that space. And it also, um, you know, there are are places where you could just get Google and you can't get competitors. It's pretty interesting. So I'm curious if you've been following along uh, this case, Ranjan, what you think of it, and, and honestly, the big question for me is Google, it's kind of funny watching the government go after Google uh, as this big, bad tech company while it's at its most vulnerable that it's been in modern memory. I'm kind of curious how you square the two of those. Yeah, well, in terms of Google's current state, we can definitely talk about if you, have you gotten any of their generative, generative search results yet? Oh, yeah. I'm on generative search, generative search yeah, uh, it, in labs. Yeah. And it's pretty good. We can definitely get into that and what that means for their overall business, at least I've found. But, but to, to me, the most interesting part of this trial, and it feels like a pretty strong argument is, so Google paid, I believe it was 4 to $7 billion a year to Apple to be the default in Safari. They paid Firefox, they paid Mozilla, the maker of Firefox, to be the default in their search bar. And it's actually the predominant source of revenue for Mozilla. So so they're paying tons and tons of money to be the default. Meanwhile, their argument is we are the best search engine. Consumers, you know, like we're the default, but that's okay because we're by far the best search engine. Now, if that's the case that you're the best and consumers will choose you anyway, why pay billions of dollars to be the default? To me, 
as a starting point, it's totally counterintuitive and it's a strong argument that of course you're doing that because the search business, the more, if you are the default behavior, that means your search engine will get better because you're ingesting more and more data and more and more queries and you can make it better and better. So, so to me, it's at, at its core, it's a pretty strong case. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that like the counter argument to that could be, yes, you are the best. People type you in more on a browser than they do any other search engine, but defaults are powerful. And how can you afford to not play that game if the if the phone makers are setting it up that way? No, of course you can. But to argue that still consumers default to you because you're the best search engine, it just like if it's an open question of the highest bidder gets the default space and this is a completely, you know, like a monetary based system, not a quality based system or one of consumer choice then make that argument to me to and another part of this i think it's worth touching on is i still always find it weird when the whole conversation is the product is free so it's hard to try to attribute antitrust in these cases with a free product because to me the customer here is still the advertiser that's where the revenue is that's where and, and advertisers everyone google has no choice they have to pay Google. That's why advertising prices for Facebook, for Google have risen over time. So, so the lens through which to look at this should always be not the product is free. So how do you really, you know, consumers are still getting a good deal. It's are the actual customers who are the advertisers, is it the best possible option and experience and output? But you know, the, the, the phrase Google tax is regularly used because it's almost, you just have to pay to be part of search like if you want to exist on the internet you have to pay which again it's the greatest business model ever invented if you got a phone and you, you just ordered the new iphone which we'll talk about at the end if it came in and a default was duck duck go would you keep that or switch to google i think i would be fine keeping it i think most people would keep it i i've I used duck duck go in the past mm -hmm. again i know you're a big boy at least no, i mean for I'm a google, little while I'm, there well i was doing the bing chat but i've never really strayed from google search I never replaced it with yeah. google search so you know it no, is no, interesting. Know, yeah. it's so convoluted because it's like this is the defense is the, sorry the prosecution is convoluted because it's like the argument is it's bad for advertisers who you know might have to pay a tax with google and they would much rather be able to like you know, have competition between Google and a, a search engine like DuckDuckGo, which is all about not tracking. Meanwhile, who's that tracking done for? It's done on behalf of the advertisers. And Google happens to be like the king of tracking people online. So yeah, no, no, I don't know, it's going to be that, tough that, to prove this one. I think the DOJ is going to lose. I, I mean, definitely given the recent track record around antitrust, I'm not saying that... Uh, it's a guaranteed win but but again it's to to me the interesting part of this and and i actually i mean on the topic of generative search so the thing that's moving search forward and making it better after 10 years 12 years where it consistently degraded as a product and was filled with more and more ads and became messier and just less useful is generative AI and the ability to, and, and I do use ChatGPT for 
a lot of search type queries and that Google's for those. So Google has released in their labs program generative search. And it's pretty amazing. To, at least I've found you put in a search query and then this kind of like little bit of a screen unfurls of a different color. And there's an essentially kind of like a an LLM driven generated answer that says, here is the answer to your search as though you're querying ChatGPT with links out to the right. I mean, it's what search always was supposed to be to me, though. The, the argument on the consumer side is, is if we actually had competition, where could search have gone or have been? Like, it's so clear anyone who has used Google, which is all of us, is that knows that search is a degraded over time in terms of quality. And like the top yeah. half got filled with the ads and it just, it didn't get better over the last decade. It's finally, because there's competition, getting better. I was going to argue with you, but as I've used generative search, I've started to like it, and I do think it's it's pretty cool. I think it's it's actually uh, it's a good experience. It's getting better. Now the question is, what does that do to their business model? Because when mm. it's gone to the point that like fifty percent of the screen is occupied by ads ahead of all the organic search results and now generative search it's back to that google promise it's clean it's accurate it's like informative it's it's just it's the answer that you're looking for and then that's uh that's what again google the original promise was now it is that again but then how does that factor into their business model i think it'll be interesting yeah. to watch it it hampers the business model and that's why they're doing cars <laughs> I mean, that's why they're doing, a joke to show ads <laughs> like there's something true in. about it exactly yeah. they need, they'll need to find new venues to show you ads um you know it, it used to be back in i mean google is the the natural predecessor of yahoo right and we rarely talk about yahoo on this show for good reasons it's kind of uh an afterthought in the tech world and long obsolete it's kind of known as a dinosaur um but they've had a pretty interesting revival of some sort. I don't even know if revival is is the right word, but what have your thoughts been on where Yahoo has gone lately? Because, you know, obviously it's not a competitor with Google, but it has had a very interesting second act or maybe third act. I would call this at least the third, if not the fourth. Um, it, Yahoo, for those who are unaware, was bought by Apollo, the private equity giant in 2021 for... Five for five billion dollars. Now, what they've been doing is essentially like it could present itself as the ultimate kind of private equity turnaround story. The Apollo went in, brought in all new management. The information had this piece uh, talks with Jim Lanzone, the new CEO, um, about how cutting costs, stripping down the organization trying to actually find where the value is. And again, this is a company that still in the last quarter made $1.8 billion in non-search revenue, um, but it's still declining. So all of these things, this is a company making billions in revenue. Um, and it, it, it's interesting to me because certain assets, again, Yahoo Sports, Fantasy Sports, my for years I have been in leagues on that, that platform and it's been great and we're, everyone, lives in Yahoo for the fantasy app, but then chats on WhatsApp or has to go out. They they could have gotten into sports betting. Yahoo Finance, again, it, I think they were saying they get 100 million users a month. It's still one of the most trafficked properties on the internet. So then, and, they, and it, it, to me, the finance one is pretty interesting because they now have a premium subscription product. I think it 
probably caught on well during the whole retail trading boom. But again, imagine some massive, some, you convert 2% of a hundred million to pay you $10 a month, $20 a month. There's so many good business opportunities sitting there in this brand that clearly to, to folks like us or listening, listeners to the big technology podcast, probably not putting Yahoo at the forefront of innovation and cutting edge technology. But again, there's a lot there that to work with. I do think that we're just going to, you know, gravitate to become like Yahoo fan podcast. <laughs> there must be that's next. Hungering for, for content, like the latest in Yahoo sports. Oh, damn. Tuning in. Should we do it? Do you think we could do an entire episode? Just a Yahoo deep dive? Well, I, okay. Here's here's what we'll do. Um, so Jim Lanzone has been, who's the CEO of Yahoo, has been on the podcast. I've known him for a lot of years. Um, I can ask him to come on to do a Yahoo podcast, but I just need to be sure that there's audience, uh, you know, there's audience interest in it. So folks, if you want to have a full Yahoo podcast, um, go to the ratings on, on Apple Podcasts, hit the five stars, Say you love the 915 show, the September 15 show. If we get more than three five-star ratings on that, I'll take that as a signal that we got to have Jim on and then we can do a full Yahoo show. What do you think? I, I like this. I mean, reading yeah. this actually brought me back to, do you remember the mid-2010s Yahoo revival under Marissa Mayer? I think maybe we called that the third act there probably, but um, what did they bought? Tumblr, they, uh, they, they, they made a lot of moves at the time. I remember. Yeah, they did. Didn't work out. Did not work out very well. So maybe this one will work out better. But it will. I don't know. I still think it's going to be an afterthought for a long time. So, but maybe not. We'll have to do a Yahoo focused episode then to, to figure it out. Okay. Speaking of companies and second acts, uh, Flexport right now is going through a bit of one of those. Uh, we've had Ryan Peterson, the the former and now you know current CEO of Flexport, which is a logistics uh, company, and, uh, it's a logistics tech company. And, um, and Ryan left, gave the company to Dave Clark, who came from the Amazon side. And Clark had the company on his own for a handful of months, not even a year. And Ryan Peterson has, has come back. So... Um, there's a lot of factors at play here. We talked a little bit about it on the show on Wednesday with Christy Coulter talking about Amazon. We talked a little bit about Clark. Ranjan, I've been getting texts from you for like the last week and a half being like, ah, I think I learned something new. I'm, I'm you know, doing more research about the Flexport story. I mean, I guess like I, I want to frame this with a broader question, which is that uh, is this just broader upheaval of startups post-COVID trying to deal with the shocks? Or is the fact that this company has like, you know, so publicly like back, you know, swung back and forth between CEOs over the past year, just more indicative of, of Flexport and potentially just like, is this just like a simple story of picking the wrong person to succeed a founder CEO? I I think what's so interesting about this story for me is, again, having an incredibly public CEO and then chairman and CEO again in Ryan Peterson, like, you know, a Twitter celebrity essentially, like a, where everyone you know hangs on his every word that and him very publicly tweeting about rescinding offers and needing to and a fortress balance sheet it makes it interesting but in reality 
I think this is similar to the Instacart drama we were just talking about, is yet another story of a company that was perfectly positioned in the pandemic. Not only was it perfectly positioned from a business standpoint in the explosion of e-commerce and the need for, you know, like faster, more automated and logistics, um, it also had, again, a very public CEO. So those things together clearly brought its valuation and fundraising to levels that could not be maintained. And and to me, so, and I, I, listening to the, your podcast with Christy from Amazon on Wednesday, like her talking mm -hmm. about, you know, again, as Dave Clark, the assassin, the uh, idea of like, you know, <laughs> enjoying firing people and just hanging around. I, I still wonder how much of it was a culture clash and how much of it was simply he came at a time to that everything was inflated in terms of expectations. There was just another piece that said that revenue is down 70% year on year for the first half. So basically 2022 first half versus 2023 down 70%. Yeah, it's just a lot of companies that were positioned well during the pandemic, it's are down. And mm -hmm. so, so to me, I wonder how much of it was really cultural and how much of it was he just entered a battle he could not win and now ryan peterson's back and and again in terms of the future of the company it's it's maybe it will normalize and like instacart is worth a reasonable amount now maybe flexport just pivots back to where a reasonable valuation relative to its revenue and growth and then everyone's happy right and i do think that it was like not only the fact that his he couldn't win the battle, but it flamed out so quickly and so publicly. Also because he was, he brought a leadership team in, uh, uh, you know, of all Amazonians largely. And people who had been at the old Flexport didn't like it. And it seems like this leadership team was obstinate and weren't willing to change. And ultimately, like, you have, like, a, a tough situation to begin with. You're If you're not nice, not flexible... Um, sort of ends up being where you where you end up yeah so, i i think probably what happened here yeah i think it's uh it's it's a it's it's almost every story of kind of like large-scale management change pandemic valuation uh twitter heavy ceo just yeah it, i think it's i think more is going to continue coming out and we're going to learn more and it's gonna mm -hmm. this is an interesting one to keep following Definitely. Um, sorry, I know we, we wanted to end on iPhone. We'll end on iPhone. But as we get close to that, I just need to ask you about Tom Brady and Delta. So Tom Brady is now <laughs> not just a spokesperson for Delta, which is kind of old news that happened last week, um, but he's there helping as an advisor, teaching the teams there about leadership. Um, just as they rework their rewards program in a way that's really pissed off a lot of members of these Delta rewards. Now, okay, I'll, I'll admit, um, I think that flight rewards programs uh, are like kind of a strange thing because they really matter to a very small portion of the population as uh, as everybody else has this like really disastrous experience on, on airplanes and flying, um, even though there's just a true modern miracle and very safe. But um, so... To me, like those who get like way in the weeds on these flight programs, it's almost like, okay, cry me a river. But however, <laughs> it has it has uh, brought up a bit of a rebellion among the Delta Gold Medallion or whatever it is 
uh, status folks who are now anti Tom Brady. Take us into the drama, Ranjan. Yeah, I, well, I hope you're not calling out folks who spend a lot of time analyzing the minutia of flight awards programs because I am one of those people, and calling I spend some time on. Calling you out, I'm, right I, I, you know what? I'm proud, <laughs> uh, proud medallion for life. Yeah. Um, so, the way so I look at, here's the way I look. If, if I flew all the time, I would absolutely be opt- optimizing this stuff because I feel like you know. At a certain point, just the the um, being on a plane all the time, it can really be soul crushing unless like it's made a little bit more pleasant. Sorry. Go yeah, ahead. no, no, it is. And I, I've been flying a lot in the last year and a half, which is probably when I've been spending more time thinking about this stuff. But but what, what's really interesting about this to me is one the Tom Brady angle, and I say this as a lifelong Patriots fan. Um, my love for post NFL Tom Brady sometimes goes up, sometimes goes down. However, Tom Brady is coming into Delta to not be a brand ambassador, but to actually give leadership lessons to the employees. I have never heard of this kind of arrangement. I don't know what it means. Or, you know, like big companies always bring in speakers and pay them a speaking fee or maybe have some kind of thing like that. Why the CEO of Delta would go on air and make this like it's a big announcement was the most awkward, weird thing to me already. Um, but yeah, the but the 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 outrage in the subreddits is Delta basically is just taking their rewards program and just slashing it, making it way less attractive, making it far less accessible for people in terms of lounges, in terms of free flights, in terms of upgrades, everything, and basically making it so you have to spend a lot more money, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting to me because again the whole antitrust angle with airlines is something probably early on that pushed me towards the topic of antitrust it was airlines because there's no other industry where the overall degradation of the entire experience is so clear to everyone who flies yet Mm -hmm. the price goes up and the service gets worse and it's all it's an oligopoly there's a few players lack of competition and because of that it's it's and it continues and it doesn't get any better and but the demand is consistent as well because people want to fly especially post covid so so i think it's the perfect kind of encapsulation of what's wrong when you don't have competition in a market and it's also the perfect encapsulation of what is wrong with corporate marketing when you do something as weird as bring in tom brady to give your uh entire company leadership lessons I don't know, man. If you were in a meeting and Tom Brady came in, just came and fired up troops, you wouldn't leave there being like, <laughs> "Let's go!" No, man. <laughs> I, I would want I want Aaron Rodgers in there. Sorry, Dude, you've, Sorry. you've just brought up the uh, <laughs> third rail for me. I've had a very, very difficult week. This might Hardly be the end of uh, the, mar- the margins big technology relationship. I believe. <laughs> no, nah, it's good. I would bring I would bring either Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers in here and let them Do you pump know, up the uh, troops. Maybe we can get him on. After Rodgers went out, I will. I bet on the Jets. I actually bet like fifteen bucks. I think it it ended up Mm -hmm. paying out. It was about eight to one. But I don't know. I had a feeling. I was like, I was. uh, I was, and it was an incredible game. Do Do you think the Jets have are above five hundred this season? Yes, I do. Because I think that like they're not going to stand still if, if the quarterback ends up being bad. They'll bring somebody else in who can win. 
with that defense and that special teams and the offensive talent, you can do it. Do you know okay. who I think they should bring in? Who? Not to to wrap up this. Tom segment. Brady. Tom Brady. <laughs> yeah, definitely. He knows the AFC East. He's available. He's clearly got time. He can take a Delta plane from wherever he is to straight New to Jersey straight to the Meadowlands. Yeah, and get going right away. I support this. Um, all right, last let's talk about the iPhone. Um, iPhone 15 is out. It was announced this week. Pre-order is open today. You and I have both ordered the iPhone 15. I guess the big question is, do you see this as a mega cycle for Apple or is this just going to be another meh upgrade cycle for the iPhone leading to the big question of whether Apple is now really not as much of a growth company as it's been in the past? Three straight quarters of falling revenue. Looks like another one is going to come. Company really needs this iPhone 15. We talked about it a lot last week. So I'm curious... What made you upgrade and what you think the prospects are for the rest of, you know, the world following suit? Uh, this upgrade cycle, and I've probably said this many times on this podcast as someone who waited in line for hours for the first iPhone and I think upgraded every year until the iPhone 10. Um, I had not upgraded since the iPhone 12. This is the first time, so it's three years. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it actually, the bigger symbol of the iPhone 15 is I'm upgrading for the USB-C charger and just because it's been three years I mean it's it's literally there's nothing of particular interest about the phone to me it's just it's time for me to do it I feel it's the USB-C is going to be worthwhile for me but other than that I really find nothing that interesting about the way they presented the iPhone and and I think I mean at a certain point, but but I say this as someone who has AirPods, who just bought the Apple Watch Ultra, who has HomePods in my house. So Apple is still taking plenty of my share of wallet. It's just that maybe phones don't need to be upgraded every year. Like, or at oh, least it doesn't not. need to be an event. It's, it's, it's moving on to focus on the Vision Pro, upgrade mm-hmm. the things that there, maybe it's like AirPods get a buy every other year cycle, watch gets every other year cycle, but but what that does to how people view Apple's numbers, it totally changes the entire trajectory of the, what was once and the iPhone company, and it was the vast majority yep. of their revenue. Well, you'll note that they don't even break out how many iPhones they sell anymore, just the total revenue. So I think that answers your question. And uh, and you're right. I mean, it is... It is uh, it's weird actually to continue to have these events. Like, you know, I remember as a reporter in San Francisco going to those reveal events, like for the seven and being like, Oh, this is amazing. You know, seeing, seeing the upgrades, like it doesn't have a button at the bottom anymore. That's super cool. And they would take us onto this, into the hands-on area. And there'd be like a thousand people with cameras, you know, jostling and Tim Cook walks the floor. It was this big thing. And I remember I I saw the videos this week of people in the hands-on area. And I was like, we don't freaking need this. Like it's the same thing. However, space grade titanium, Ron John. I can't say no <laughs> to that. Space grade. I I need Johnny Ive to. I need Johnny Ive to tell me about space grade titanium. Otherwise, I'm not interested. No. Light <laughs> enough to get into space, strong enough to withstand the elements. Space grade <laughs> titanium. On the Wait, is that really 15. what they said? Yeah. Oh wow. I, uh, wow. <laughs> hey, look, we, we both bought without even having to hear the pitch. I know. So at this point, I the know. products are selling themselves. We can't really say anything. 
I know. I, I, I actually pre-ordered at 8.05 a.m. Uh, and again, to, to, to Apple's credit, and actually in terms of the power of Tim Cook, killer Tim Cook in the ecosystem, is on my iPhone, and I have an Apple card. It's not, I don't use it as a primary credit card, but I have one and I literally use it for the financing of Apple products. Mm -hmm. And it took like less than one minute to order, even say that I just want to trade in a phone and it even is like, do you want to trade in Ron Johns Roy's iPhone 12 Pro Max? Click yeah. that, okay, the new price is, da da da. Um, and then financing, here's the exact amount. Double click uh, on the right side to enable Apple Pay and it's done. And it's just crazy. that power, uh, and yeah. it's financed and you get 3% back uh, mm. with the Apple card. Like that whole process was almost it was scarily good and it was it's impressive yeah i had never pre-ordered before and so i'm going to the pre-order and i get to check out and it's like double click on the side of your phone to finish this purchase and like see on my phone there's already the checkout function and i'm yep. like what the hell that is good no, i'm t i'm t i still me, contend yeah. tim cook would destroy either mark zuckerberg or elon musk in a cage match because look what he has built quietly without any fanfare without any uh boasting he's just the most killer ecosystem of a company that's imaginable but you know that doesn't count once you're in the octagon it's all about once you're in the octagon <laughs> those are my fists for those who are listening all right everybody thank you for listening thank you ranjan roy for being here we'll do it next week by the way we'll probably be having our 15s in hand at that point it's the pickup time so We'll do a quick little review, but we'll talk also about the week's news. Plenty to go on, plenty to discuss. Thanks again, Ranjan, for being here. Thank you. Thank you to everybody for listening. And thank you to LinkedIn for having me as part of your podcast network. Always a joy. Always great to be here with Ranjan and talk about the week's news. We'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. <laughs>